Good morning. Thank you for gathering with us. Thank you for giving us a chance to lead you just a little bit closer to Jesus, to lead you into his presence through worship. It's a privilege that we don't take lightly, and we're thankful for you being here this morning. This series that we're in the middle of now is called Authentic Faith, the Church. We're simply asking, are, are we getting church right? Are we churching right, if you will? The same way you'd ask, like, am I adulting right? Are, are, we, are we doing it the way, and by right, it, we're not talking about are we doing it the way that we really like it or the way that keeps up with another church that's really popular right now. We're looking at the scripture. We're looking at what did God say makes a gathering a church? What does God say makes leadership good leadership or bad leadership or effective or ineffective leadership? And, and this morning we're looking at worship. What does God say about worship? Worship is a key part of almost every church you'll ever go to that's worth anything at all. It's going to have an aspect of worship, usually some sort of a song service, but that's not really the heart of it. And this morning we're going to look at what the scriptures actually say about worship. And once again, we're using Daniel Strickland's uh, metaphor of a tree to kind of just have mental scaffolding, something to help us get it and really understand it and put it all in perspective. She says that our deepest beliefs fuel the values that drive the actions that produce the results that we see in our lives. And in this metaphor, the deepest beliefs and truths would be the roots of the tree. The values then would be the, the right and wrong ideas that come out of that deeper truth. And the actions would be what we do about all that. And the fruit would be what happens because of our actions. Well, if worship were a tree, the roots would not be the idea that maybe we just really have a craving to worship for some reason. It's not why. It's not because a lot of churches do it, so probably we should. That is not the root of worship. In the Bible, the root of the tree of worship, the most important thing is that God is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our surrender. The greatness and goodness and power of God, his character, his everything about him is what worship is about. He deserves our worship. He deserves praise. He deserves thanks. He deserves thanksgiving. He deserves us to pledge allegiance to him over and over again and, and keep obeying him. He deserves us to sing and shout and dance and whatever else we do to express joy and thanksgiving and surrender. He deserves all of that. The trunk of the tree of worship would be Anything God says. It just makes sense. If God himself is the whole point of the whole thing, then anything he says, any patterns we see in scripture, if anything Jesus himself said about worship is there, then we really need to pay attention to that. That's got to shape anything that we do more than anything else. But then you've got the branches, and those are the choices we make. Are we casual? Are we formal? Do we sing hymns or choruses or both? Are we, uh, whatever choices we make about worship, do we read scripture? Do we make people stand or sit or kneel or whatever else? Do we raise our hands? Do we not? Any kind of choices we make about worship then are the branches of this tree, but they have to grow out of that deep root that God is God and anything he himself says for us to even have a, a hope of getting it right. And the fruit then of worship would be whatever all of that produces. If the choices that we make 
about worship actually help people surrender to God and pledge their allegiance to Him and give Him joy and express their joy and praise and thanksgiving to Him effectively. If we're united in that because of how we do it, then that is good fruit and that is good worship. Once again, let's, let's start. We're going to unpack each one of these ideas really deeply, starting with the roots. C.S. Lewis says, A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. And I would love to have you say this out loud with me this morning. Worship is the only sane response to the glory of God. One more time. Worship is the only sane response to the glory of God. When we get even a glimpse of who God is and what he is and how completely outranked we are when we're next to him, that is where worship begins. Worship is a natural reaction to who he is. It begins with fear and awe more than anything else. One of the most repeated sentences in the scripture throughout several different books is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalmist writes, it's because of your unfailing love I can enter your house. I will worship at your temple with deepest awe. In Psalm 29, honor the Lord for the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. If you've been at Morrison Hill a lot, you've probably heard this or you've probably heard it other places too, but this is the truth. Holiness, the key idea, the root of the tree of holiness, if you will, is Something that is separate, it's different, it's special, it's not the same as all the others. And this is ultimately what we celebrate when we worship God, is that he is completely different than anything else. Yes, he's pure, yes, he's holy. We imagine him as being shiny and all the other things that we sometimes associate with the idea of holiness. But that's not the point. The point is he alone is God. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. God is God. And he deserves our worship. And when we get a glimpse of this, something shifts inside of us. And when that shift happens, when we align ourselves on purpose because, to the truth that we have just now seen, that at the heart, that is it. That is worship. That's at the heart of anything that's real and good in worship. The prophet Isaiah got a glimpse of God that rocked his world and changed his life. He got a vision of God on his throne and these amazing creatures worshiping him and flying all around singing and praising God. And his response was, I am doomed for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. You see what's happening there? This glimpse he realized how completely other how completely holy, separate, special God is. And he's so aware that he and all the people he knows and loves are not in that same category, and he's scared. But as he interacts with God, as he stays, and he realizes that God himself is revealing this vision to him, as he stays in that moment, as he's there, this moment ends with the life-shaping moment where he says, here I am, send me. Something has shifted in his spirit. Something has shifted as he's aligned himself with truth. Keep those two terms in mind because they come into play here in a few minutes. In Matthew 14, 
Jesus spends the whole day revealing his glory, revealing who he is and how he is something more, something other than what people had thought he was up at that point. He feeds 5,000 people, for example. He walks on water, and when Peter asks, if it's really you, help me walk on water too, and he does. And then when Peter falls in, he saves him. You've heard these stories, you know what I'm talking about, but look at what happens when he and Peter get back in the boat. Matthew 14, verse 33, then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. Notice what's not happening. Nobody says, hey, I got a guitar. Nobody says, hey, wait, 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 let me get the hymn books out. Nobody says, let's get the projectors on. There's no electricity out here. We can't do this. There's no, nothing like that is going on because this is not what they're talking about. This idea of worship is this other thing that we're just, we're just talking about. It's they have gotten a glimpse of God. They've gotten a glimpse of the glory of who Jesus really is and their response to that is shock and awe and fear and amazement and they just can't help expressing it somehow and in this case they just kind of shout, you really are the son of God. That's worship. In Matthew 15, Jesus refuses to heal a Gentile woman it's one of those awkward stories that kind of is kind of creepy to share with people who don't know Jesus because you're, you're kind of wanting to like paint a better picture of him than he even tries to paint for himself, which is impossible, but Jesus didn't try. He didn't spin anything. And he was always playing chess, not checkers. He didn't really care what people thought at any given moment. He's just got his own agenda. And in this case, this woman comes up and asks him to heal her daughter, and his reply is no. And here's why, because you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. It's a really incredible, awkward moment. But look at her response, Matthew 15, 25. But she came and worshipped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. I got to say a couple things. First, I really admire this woman because when God tells me no, it's not my first inclination to worship him in any sense of that word. That, that takes some will, that takes some time, that takes some choices, that takes some, a lot of stuff that he has to wreck and rebuild in me every single time. But she just jumps right into it. But the same thing is, I don't want you to picture that she, Jesus says, no, I can't do that because you're a Gentile. And she goes, hold on, let, uh, let's back up. Lord, I lift your name on high. And she kind of sings to him and then he's like, oh, okay, I guess so. That's not what's happening. She is falling in his feet. She is groveling. She is screaming and crying and begging she is saying look you're the only one who can help me nobody else can help me but you and i'm begging you please and what does the scripture call that worship because she is acknowledging the otherness of god she's got a glimpse of his glory even though he's at that moment telling her no and you know how jesus responds to that he says oh okay and he holds her up as an example of faith to all of his Jewish followers all around. And we're still reading about that woman and her faith today. He responds to that worship, that genuine worship of hers that was basically just a, a sobbing kind of cry rolling in the dirt at his feet. With love, power, something changes in John 9, Jesus healed a man born blind. And when this man comes to him and Jesus tells him that he's the Messiah, the man believes it. It's the same guy who had said to the Pharisees, look, I don't know if he's good or bad. All I know is once I was blind and now I see. 
There's real power here. Something has shifted. There's truth. Something has changed in my heart. I don't even know who he is yet, but I love this guy. Jesus says he's the Messiah, John 9, 38. And he worshiped Jesus. Again, this guy's not saying, hey, and, and guess what? I've got a ukulele. Watch this. I actually play piano. That is not what's going on. He is just completely surrendering his life to this person who has moved him and changed him and wrecked and rehealed and reshaped everything. This is the dream. This is what worship is supposed to be about. In Romans 1, Paul describes what happens when people refuse to worship God. It's a long, convoluted, not convoluted really, it just seems like it because we try to not take it at face value these days. But Romans 1.21 kind of sums it up, says this. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas about what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. And Paul is clearly talking about non-believers here. He's talking about people who wholeheartedly, wholesalely reject God. Excuse me. But this same, but this same kind of confusion happens within the church whenever we make a trunk or a branch issue into a root issue. Let me say that again. This same kind of confusion in our minds going dark it happens within the church whenever we make a trunk or a branch issue into a root issue. And we've all done that at some way, somehow, some point, or our church has, or every church has in history, some way. A little over a year ago, we had the privilege and honor to go and to serve our, our, some of our brothers and sisters in Haiti. One of the things I got to do was to lead a, a short workshop on worship. And it ended up being completely different than what I thought. I thought I was going to teach them some stuff about music. Turns out they are like amazing musicians that taught me stuff. Uh, turns out all the things that I wanted to tell them about, um, the fundamentals of worship, some of the same things we're talking about this morning, they kind of knew. But we had this question and answer time that turned out to be almost the whole thing. And one of their biggest questions and issues of the day was this. They said, how much time should we spend in praise songs and how much time should we spend in worship songs? How many praise songs versus worship songs need to be on every set list? And I, I was like, what, really? What? And it, like there's a ratio? Like there's a holy ratio? Like it has to be? Or, or, I don't think there's a ratio. And as we kept asking these questions, what we found out was this is a really big deal at that point among their churches. And there was a lot of division, a lot of anger about this. And someone had told them that you have to have this, a certain amount of songs that are worship songs. I don't even know for sure what they meant by that. Versus praise songs. Again, I, praise means saying out loud things that are great about God. And worship means kind of pledging allegiance to him. And usually most songs kind of do both. But somehow or another, this, had, this was a big deal to them. And what we were able to help them see, I hope, was those are trunk and branch issues. Those are really just branch issues, honestly. The, the point is that you're trying to help people connect with who God is. 
And whatever you're doing, whatever kind of songs or any other kind of things you're doing in your worship times has to be connecting them with Him and shifting them, changing them in spirit and in truth. Also in Matthew 15, Jesus confronts the religious leaders of His day who were His biggest enemies, His biggest antagonists, by the way. But He tells them that their worship was a farce because they cared more about the rules they made up than they did about God's actual priorities. May that never be true here. And wherever it is, may that change today. May we always care more about God's actual priorities than any rules we made up or any rules anybody else made up. That is at the heart of worship. So that's the roots. In the trunk of the tree, we're, we're seeing a lot of patterns in Scripture of what worship is. And, and we haven't even got to singing yet. But let's look first. Did Jesus himself say anything out loud about what worship should be? He really just said one thing, and it was this. He was talking to a Samaritan woman at the well in Samaria. And in John 4.24, Jesus Christ said this. For God is spirit... So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I'm not arrogant or naive enough to believe that I know everything that he meant by that. That everything he meant by worshiping in spirit or everything he meant by worshiping in truth. But I do believe after a lifetime of study and worship, worshiping God and leading worship and, and, and study again, I do believe I, I know some of the key ideas and I want to share those with you this morning. Please pay attention. Please listen. Let's walk through these together. First thing Jesus said was worship has to be in spirit. I believe with all my heart that that means there are life-shaping experiences going on. Your spirit is shifting. Something is changing. Something, there is a real connection between your soul and Jesus Christ. Something is happening there that's real. And I believe that for that to be happening, the why, the motivation, the point of worship has always got to be more important than the where or the how or the what. The where and the how and the what are the branches. The why is the trunk. It's, it's, if God is God and he deserves our worship and it's got to be in spirit and truth, that's what needs to drive the train on whether, whether, how we do stuff. Paul, Paul is talking about the same idea when he writes about prayer to Timothy. But I'm going to use this as, as one example of how a lot of times we just get so derailed in a, in a scripture. We just kind of turn corners and go down rabbit trails we don't really need to go to. And we miss the point. So allow me, indulge me for a second, and then, then don't miss the point. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.8. He says, in every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. Now, when we read that, a lot of times we go, wait, so what's a place of worship? So that means we should have church buildings, right? Maybe. That's not really the point. That's not what he's going for. He says, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God. Is that just talking about men? Men are supposed to raise their hands. Maybe women are not. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, derail even further. You ready? There's nowhere in the Bible that says that you're supposed to bow your head and close your eyes like your mom and daddy taught you to when you were a child it's not wrong in fact to this day i do that a lot myself 
when I'm praying. Because if anything that helps you block out the rest of the world and concentrate, if there's some motion you can do, even if it's just bowing your head, that really, truly, from your heart is expressing reverence to God. And, and, re and saying this moment belongs to him, then absolutely it's a great idea, but it's not a biblical idea. That's, some, that's one of the branch issues. The idea of prayer is, is about actually connecting with God throughout Scripture. And on the rare occasions it mentions the posture people take, Here, here's what it usually says. It usually says they're standing, not always, but it usually says that, and it usually says their eyes are open, and it usually says that if it mentions what they're doing with their hands, they're raising them. Paul's not commanding that here. He's just saying, acknowledging that this was the norm and this is the thing. And he's not just talking about men. He's talking about everybody. But listen, in every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. The point of what he's trying to say here is that when you approach God, when you are together in a place of worship and you are praying together, that your hands need to be clean. There can't be anything in this situation that is, that is not other in the good sense. It, it's, it's unholy, it's broken, it's bad. You're bringing something before God that should be brought toward him. When you're raising your hands in prayer to God, Paul is saying, you need to be free from anger and controversy. And that's the point, and that's what he's saying. Real worship shifts our spirit and we end up being united in the presence of God. Even if we still don't understand each other or totally agree with each other about every single thing, we find unity and passion and purpose in our shared desire and our shared willingness to let all of our spirit shift closer to Him. And as a, as a side effect, if nothing else, we all get just a little bit closer to each other too. And all this has happened. We haven't even talked about music for a second. Let's talk about music for just a moment. And in fact, let's take a little kind of church history trip, if you will. Martin Luther, back in the 1600s, was the one who started the idea that became what we now know as the classic hymns. When I was a child, that was church music. That's all there was, really. All right? But that began in Germany about 1600, in the 1600s. And here's, what, here's the thing. If you research this, and I hope that you do, always feel free to fact check everything I say. If I'm wrong, come and tell me because I don't want to be wrong. and I'm doing my best to be right. But here's what I found out. His desire, the reason he first started writing these hymns, was he wanted to transform young people's minds. I know that sounds weird, but here, here was the problem. At that point in history, uh, the church music had evolved where it was mostly a performance by professional and really, really talented musicians. And people, it was usually in a different language. It was in Latin or something instead of German or whatever other language everybody was speaking. And so they just weren't getting it. They, it, it, was, it. they may love it. They may hate it. That was irrelevant. They weren't really truly worshiping. It wasn't changing their hearts. It wasn't uniting them in truth, which again, spirit and truth, right? So he said, you know what? What if we set, what if we wrote some songs that express truth? That's what a hymn is. In the scripture, it refers to hymns, and that's what it is. It's a song, it's, it's, it's truth set to music in a memorable and powerful way. And so what if we set some scriptures, some prayers, some creeds to, to 
um, to music? What if we enable people to sing these in their own language and to, to pray these together and to memorize these ideas and these truths and celebrate them and say them together? And he, he started taking some folk music and he even wrote some of his own. One of his most famous hymns that was completely original was A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I love that one. About 200 years later, this idea was still around because it was, it was working. But then there were several people, the Wesleys, and Fanny Crosby was one of, the, one of my favorites. She wrote over 200 songs, that we, uh, are, a lot of which are still in circulation today. Some of my personal favorites are Praise Him, Praise Him, Blessed Assurance, and To God Be the Glory. Here's my belief. I don't think they were so great and so powerful and so enduring because God just really loves pianos and organs or singing in harmony. That's more branch issues. I like those things. I'll be honest. I still like that. I like the way that sounds. I mean, I, I, that was, it takes me back to when I was a child, and sometimes we still do that here, and it takes me in the prayer. I like it. It's good. But listen, here's what I believe that those were so powerful is it was all about the why. Listen. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life and atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Hear that? That's truth. Set to music. And when you sing that together, there's like something shifts. It's worship. About 100 years later, in the 60s and 70s, things really changed again here in America, especially. There were some people within the church, like the Gaithers and the gospel music artists, that were changing things from the inside out. And there were people outside of the church that had never grown up with hymns, never heard any Fanny Crosby songs, had no idea what was going on, but they found Jesus. They had been hippies, and they loved folk music and all that, and they, they didn't look like church people of the day. They didn't sound like them or smell like them or totally different but man they love Jesus and so as soon as they started connecting with him they started writing music their way and a lot of people saw that as a rebellion against church music or something like that but it wasn't it was the same thing as Martin Luther and Fanny Crosby and everybody else they were just trying to write truth to music they were trying to write prayers to music. They were setting actual psalms to music. They were singing spiritual songs, which is, those are the three categories you see throughout Scripture. Spiritual songs are where you sing your passion out to God. You sing your love for Him. Here's one of their scriptural songs that you might recognize. It's been in churches for a long time. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Sing with me. And his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Gaithers are singing. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives. All fear is gone because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. 
feel a shift in your spirit when you sing songs like that? I do. And I think that's why they're still around, because that's what makes worship worship. Not that the Gaither throwed it, not one instrument, not where you heard it, not any of that stuff, but that it's real. And if it's real for you, it's worship. Worship must be in spirit and in truth. It must harmonize with the actual truth of God. It's got to, or it's got to harmonize with God's actual purposes in the world. Here's what God said through the prophet Amos to the people of that era, of that day. He said, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. One of my favorite artists growing up who just absolutely shifted my heart in so many ways was Keith Green. All of his songs were like that. His, his performance songs, his worship songs, all of that. Paul, again, he's not so much talking about a worship service, but this, this is the same process he's describing in Romans 12, 1 through 2, when he writes, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. Listen, this is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing I know you don't really care about Greek and Hebrew and stuff like that, but let, let me just tell you a fact here that matters, I think, a lot. There are three Hebrew words and six Greek words that we translate into English as worship, and none of them mean music. None of them means singing in church. None of them means that. Every single one of them, in one way or another, means these two ideas, serving reverently or expressing respect and surrender in a physical way. Now, singing and playing music is a physical way, but it's not really about that. It's about that's the why, not the what or the where, the how. In Ephesians 5, Paul is outlining this is how it looks to live like a, like a Christian. This is what a Christian family looks like, a Christian marriage looks like, Christian life. This is what it's like. And in the middle of all that, he says, while you're doing all these things, you're also singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord in your hearts. I wish I had time in your, uh, the attachment that you're hearing this online, if, 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 if there's an attachment that lists so many scriptures, all throughout the scriptures there are examples of how much God loves music, how he created music, how worship is supposed to include music. But that, I, I just felt like what we really had to focus on today was the why, not the where, the what, or the how. And the why is not the music. That is a what or where how. I hope that's clear. But again, Colossians 3.16. Here's another example. Let the message of Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. Eugene H. Peterson says that the most important thing a pastor does is stand in a pulpit every Sunday and say... Let us worship God. 
He writes, if that ceases to be the primary thing I do in terms of my energy, my imagination, and the way I structure my life, then I no longer function as a pastor. My challenge to you is simply that not just in the area of worship, not just in the area of what we sing and how we stand and sit and read scripture and whatever else happens when we meet together, but in every area of your life, and this morning, especially that area of your life, would you let, the real, the, the, let it be in spirit and in truth? Would you make it be in spirit and truth? Would you surrender? Would you fill out the sentence, Lord, I will, and would you complete that in a way that whatever he's convicting you about, Maybe you need to stop something. Maybe you need to start something. Maybe you just need to pay a little bit more attention or sing along or not sing along. Sit back down and pray instead. Maybe you need to raise your hands. Maybe you need to not to. Whatever it is that makes it more in spirit and more in truth for you to sing, to pray, to whatever else we do as worship together and the way you live your life. May we all give our bodies to Christ. Give him everything in genuine Biblical worship.